This is CliffCentral.com. This is Disrupt with Booming Club, powered by Two Systems. Good morning and welcome again to Disrupt with Mpumin Tlapo. Thank you for joining us on the show again. If you are with us for the first time um, on this show, we focus on really speaking to industry leaders, captains of industry and influential people around how this technology-evolving world is impacting our lives, our society. And we really look at it from very different angles and perspectives. Um, we've got another very interesting insight that we'll get today from our guest, who I'll introduce a little bit later on in the show. Um, uh, with me today, joining me once again, uh, Dumi Lobela. Dumi, how are you? Hey, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. We're I'm very good. happy to have you back. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be back. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> um, talking about what's happening and what's trending yes. um, within the technology and business arena. I know there's three key areas we're going to look at mm-hmm. today. Before Exciting we, areas. Yes, before we talk to our guest. Yes. Um, and just to give you a little bit of a taste of um, who our guest is uh, for the show today, um, she's a successful young woman. She's the founder of um, a founding and member of Black Women in Science. Um, she has been identified as the Maryland Guardian Young South Africans under the education sector in 2016, the top 200. Um, she is a master's degree graduate in applied environmental science, and she's also pursuing a PhD in the global change at the Global Change Institute of Wits University. Um, and we're going to talk about the work that she's doing, the research she's doing, and how that's going to shape and change um, things like, you know, uh, sustainability of the environment, things like food security, and really understanding how technology starts to play a role in that space. Uh, but before we get to that, Dumi, so what's been happening over the last couple of weeks um, from a technology and disruption perspective that you picked up? Oh, exciting things, exciting things. First up, we're going to be talking about the taxi industry, and we know the taxi industry, how we feel about that as Joe Burgers, right? Yes. Well, they have launched... Uh, Transport management technology platform, right? It's called Afterrobot. This allows commuters, basically, to know where their taxi is and to actually pre-order a taxi. Okay. So it sounds like something It's an Uber. Yes. Okay. It's, a, it's an Uber, but for the taxi, minibus taxi industry. Okay. For, for the minibus taxi yes. industry. Who has, who's they? Who's launched this? Okay. So it's the Johannesburg Southern Suburbs Taxi Association. Okay. So it's a taxi association yes. that have launched their own. Yes. They have launched their own technology platform. Fantastic. Yes. Basically, this allows users to basically, as a commuter, right? Instead of waking up at 4 a.m., 3 a.m. to go stop uh, or, or um, get a taxi at some spot, I can actually pre-order it on this mobile platform okay. from my mobile device, wherever I, I, I um, book it from. Okay. On my mobile device. And then at the particular time where I said I want the taxi to be there, it will be there. So instead of me waking up earlier, I can wake up at my normal time and the taxi will find me at my normal spot. So again, it's like a an, an Uber. Uh. However, this also helps uh, monitoring of taxis. So they will have devices, right, on taxis. Basically, taxi owners can track where their taxis are at any particular time. Oh, okay. Right? Which, is, which is quite nice because I think yeah. I mean, I know from my time when I, when I used to catch taxis as a means of transport, the the biggest thing was just the uncertainty. 
Yes. You know, um, so one, you could get there. There is a taxi, but it's going to take an hour to get full. Yeah. You know? So you don't know. You don't know. <laughs> two, you could get there. There aren't any taxis and you wait an hour for one to arrive. So is this in, att- attempting to deal with that uncertainty and unpredictability? Yes. The inefficiencies and to create new routes. So a lot of the taxi drivers or taxi associations stick to certain routes, right? Yes. So this will help them to know where their commuters are. So okay. if you know that there's a particular route where there are a lot of people that are asking for the taxi, then you can create a route along that area. Very so this is exciting stuff. So it will be um, installed in 10,000 vehicles, right? 4,000 owners and 50,000 community commuters will be able to use this technology. It is awesome, I think, for me. Fantastic. However, right? I mean, we we know <laughs> the minibus taxi industries and how it operates, right? Mm, mm. So people are questioning, so how is this going to be impacting the Uber service, right? What What is the difference between this minibus taxi um, um, application or technology platform versus the Uber? Because it does exactly the same thing. Okay. Number one, it's price, right? So taxis are still relatively cheaper than your Ubers. So the people that can afford taxis, actually it affects them the most, right? Not for us. Unless you want to catch a taxi. I mean, some of us, maybe we can't afford these Ubers and Mm. we think, okay, this is a greater platform to actually get where I need to go and to arrive on time. I mean, we've heard so many stories of people who have been late for interviews, late for meetings because of the unpredictability, like you said, of the routes. So it will also help in that Number two, it will help taxi owners track their taxis, right? Their vehicles. So a lot of the times they're complaining now. I mean, I was even heard stories a couple of days ago of taxi drivers who left because they were disgruntled, left their uh, taxis somewhere, and then the owner had to just run around and find them. Okay. So this actually helps the taxi associations to track where their vehicles are at any given point in time. Okay. So you basically can report back and say, in these routes, because obviously with the taxi industry as well, they're fighting over routes. Mm. You can actually prove that my taxis were not on your route. They were here. So okay. with a lot of taxi violence right now, that is what is happening. They're actually fighting for routes because obviously it's more money. Okay. So those are the things. So the visionary behind this is Obageng Morabe Di Matoko. Call him Obi. So he's the guy that actually created this platform. It was launched last week. Um, and it will be used over the next, obviously, uh, deployed over the next couple of months. Okay. The biggest thing I think for me is the safety for the taxis, right? So you can deploy this technology great, but how safe is it? Actually, can it be hacked? So for instance, I book a taxi 4 a.m. and I say I'm going to be at this designated spot at 4 a.m. I'm a woman, right? Mm, and mm, I'm alone. Mm. How do I trust that this taxi is actually the one that I ordered? So there's still those things that, you know, need to be worked around to say, how safe am I to actually book a taxi online on my mobile device? Okay. But it's still great stuff nonetheless. I think it's fantastic. It's quite, I mean, it's also bringing it's some awesome. transparency. It's yes. bringing some progression into the industry. So we like that. I, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. On to our next top story, censors. We love censors, right? We love stats essay, right? No. <laughs> they knock on the door. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> so censors have developed a technology platform as well, okay. right? To basically collect stats, right? So what they've done before, obviously, you know, they would knock on your door, be like, okay, how many people do you have in this house? Like, how ha- how long have you lived here? Surnames, take all your details and take forever and you'll have these people running around, right? Security perspective, it was also a big issue because you found that a lot of the time when census took place, there were a lot of people who were robbed, right? Um, and, and it was not great. So now, well, still the same thing. It hasn't changed much. However, 
Status they have announced that they are basically going electronic, right? They are going to be conducting census in 2021 using tablets, um, using uh, multiple uh, uh, platforms, basically technology platforms that will okay. collect the data, okay. obviously, and basically distribute the data and have um, quick access to the data, obviously, for the powers that be the stakeholders, for them to know easily when this person um, was there at a particular house and what the information of those people in that house will be uploaded quickly and efficiently. That is great for us, right? However, so I, I've got, I've got you, okay, so I, which, whichever story I have, I always have the other side, right? <laughs> so this is great, right? Yes. Less paper, right? So a lot of people will, you know, be experiencing less paper. So it's, it's great, right? Yes. So you don't have to go through multiple pages. However, we still have 150,000 people that are going to be going to houses with tablets. What problem does that pose? Mm. 150,000 tablets running around. I mean, it's a big cost. If it's one or two, it's you. manageable. But uh, I mean, at those numbers, it becomes a huge challenge. Yes. Yeah, so it's a risk. Theft, right? Yes. So, so if I go, and I know, we all know census, it will be happening because there'll be adverts everywhere. And I know there'll be people wearing t-shirts who have tablets, right? So I can easily create a syndicate where I target these people, right? Yeah. So how is the safety of these people going to be assured, right? And the safety of the people that are in those houses that will be participating in the census. Number two, is it really practical to have 150, well, 165,000, by the way, tablets that will be bought, but they'll be having 150,000 field workers that will be going around house to house. But is it really practical to have a tablet, right? A customized tablet that is with customized um, um, applications mm-hmm. on it. Yes. Every 10 years. So after the census, then what's going to happen to these tablets, right? Mm-hmm. 10 years later, unless they're planning to do something special, they haven't actually announced what they're going to be doing with these tablets afterwards. But unless they're going to be doing something productive and special with these tablets after the fact, it's actually a waste of money. You could create actually multiple platforms right you were talking about having use your own device right so push sms's push emails whatever to people track who has responded and maybe only go to those houses where people haven't responded right Mm, you can mm. easily track from a location perspective who answered and when right so you, you you can apply multiple technologies to do this but for me it's not a practical exercise they are predicting that it's going to cost 3.4 billion Right to actually launch this electronic census. It's big money. <laughs> it's big money. However, um, Treasury have only allocated about a billion, right, over the next three years for Stats say to actually do this. So it's going to actually be interesting how they capitalize. Also, for me, can't you capitalize on your current platform? Stats say already has infrastructure, technology infrastructure in play. They don't have to now go create another data center. They don't have to create another platform where they actually do this. Use what you're using right now yes. and maybe the money will come down. Yes. Right? Actually, it yes. will come down, right? Yeah. Be creative. There's technology that does so many things. Be creative on that. So I'm not too... I'm happy. I'm great. No more paper. We're saving, going green. However, terms of the practicality of this maybe not so great yeah so, so i think the message there is, is really that they need to consider how they leverage like you said existing technology yeah. and um you know 2021 is a long time in the technology world so it even is. the investments or ideas concepts they've got now might not be so relevant by the time we get to that point so they just need to be cognizant i think cognizant but we need influencers as well i think they need to be a committee i mean our dear president was announcing that there will be actually a committee a 
digital committee, right? You need to consult these committees and say, in the next three years, a lot, like you say, will be happening. Yes. Why don't you evolve with it? Instead of saying we're going to have these tablets, maybe there'll something in the next two years that will actually come up that will be more beneficial to you. Lower cost. Lower cost in, yes. in that area. And I'm hoping that these tablets will be locally manufactured. I'm <laughs> hoping that these tablets will be bought from a local Supplier and a local company Because I'm all for buy local, buy black Okay Yes <laughs> Our third story Our third story Intel Intel is in trouble Okay, so Intel basically had flaws on their chips Right And they didn't inform the US government And the US government is not happy Because they're saying How could you not tell us something so crucial and so critical Because then we would be able to basically do something to Or prepare ourselves um, 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 for this So Intel are saying that No we didn't actually have to tell you Because it didn't actually compromise anyone Nothing was hacked Nobody Like nothing was damaged mm. So we actually didn't have to So the US government officials Right Were informed of the flaws When they went public However Alphabet informed uh, uh, Intel Over six months ago of these flaws Of the vulnerabilities yes, yes Of the vulnerabilities On these chips right Because they were using These chips for Their applications And development in, in uh, At Google So but What happened is that Once they uh, uh, Found these flaws They actually informed them. they said We're giving you 90 days To sort this out And you can inform Whoever you needed to inform And they didn't right And now Google is saying But it's not our job We, we told them <laughs> To fix it mm. And then we did What we needed to do So right now we, It's going through The legal process Back in Fourth, where um, the United States Computer Emergency Readiness Team, gosh, USS uh, CERT, right, uh, are basically collecting reports. So from uh, AMD, Google, Alphabet regarding this to say you have exposed us because you know the US are very finicky when it comes to cybersecurity and sec- as security. we all should be, yeah, as we all should. But they are worse. Mm. I think they we know as as the First Nation we know how they feel about. Um, um, such security um, flaws or being compromised from a security perspective. So they basically, at this point, are saying that they need to account, right? So everybody who is basically like your Microsoft, so everybody must account. Amazon was also part of this. So everybody must account about what happened and what is the process moving forward? Should they inform? And and should they inform the authorities? And mm. if they don't inform the authorities, what are the consequences that come out of that? So it was a it, it's actually a big story pending. Um, the the Google guys Alphabet they submitting reports and everybody's reviewing it to say what do we do moving forward? But the U.S. authorities are saying if there's any company, especially if you're multinational, especially if you're manufacturing creating chips, things that manufacturers use and things that will be used in applications and hardware across the spectrum. Across the spectrum, yeah, we need to. Know Know about it, right? We don't want to be like the AU, <laughs> finding out afterwards that uh, there were things that were in these chips yes. that we didn't actually know about. Yes. So for me, I think uh, it's this story is not going in anywhere anytime soon. I think that we will see a lot of developments with regards to them coming up with uh, regulations, legislation that. Dictates what should happen if you know, because obviously Intel was protecting their brand, right? Yes. Think about it. Yes. You are a Chip manufacturer, right? And it's a stalwart, used you know, globally. industry yes. established for many years. Yes, and you tell people, oh, listen, we've got a flaw. Um, see, they're not like cars; they're not going to recall, right? Yeah. <laughs> so all they're going to do, they're going to come up with a patch, or they're going to come up with something that basically helps, you know, not to make sure that uh, that flaw actually uh, compromises a lot of manufacturers or compromises a lot of systems. Mm. But right now, it's nobody actually knows the extent. 
to which this has affected. And obviously, you don't want to know. I, 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 if I was Intel, I wouldn't tell people mm. as well. But I think you know, it, it goes back to a similar case we had with Google when they were, you know, when they were hacked and they had a ransomware attack. Yes. And eventually, they paid the 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 ransom, and the data was released. You know, those I think credit card details and user information. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, the biggest issue that people had was the lack of transparency. So the fact that you can be compromised or that your systems can be vulnerable, I think we accept that the world we live in today, there are people that make a career mm-hmm. of of hacking and and you know and compromising systems. I think the biggest the bigger issue here for Intel is really about being transparent, you know, being for, forthcoming with information, so that people then are aware and they can make decisions about how they handle that. You know, that's probably for me. The bigger consideration, broadly, even beyond Intel, for for any company, um, in a in a that that enters this digital arena, is that when you do have these compromises mm, of mm. people's data and information, mm-hmm. how you how you respond to that in terms of you know, letting people know. I mean, it's a simple thing, uh, alerting people, allowing them to people? prepare themselves. So they're saying they informed <laughs> their constituents, right? Their stakeholders, yeah. the ones that they actually uh, manufacture chips for. They don't need to inform anybody else. Why should they inform the public? Yeah. It's their defense. If I inform Microsoft and Microsoft know, why should I inform anybody else? Uh, it's great. It's a great area. <laughs> it's a yeah. great area. So we'll see that one evolving. <laughs> yes, we will. So that's it for our top stories for this morning. Thank you very much, Dumi. Um, we will now then... Turn the agenda to our guest for today Who's been listening very attentively <laughs> As Timmy's been speaking um, Before we get before we get into the discussion Ndoni, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Thank very you well, so thank you for, for joining us Ndoni Mchunu you're a, you're a PhD candidate um, You've completed your master's degree um, You're a professional scientist as you said earlier um, Why do you pursue this career Of all the things you could have done? How did you get to be in the space where you're now three years into your PhD? Mm. So I'd love to say that it's something that I planned and it's not. And I think that's why I'm passionate about it as well. Okay. Because as I've grown into it and as I've fallen into it in, in inverted commas, um, it's actually shown me the opportunities that I can, that I have as a black female in this industry. So, um, yeah, I fell into it. Um, my, I got interested in the, I grew up in KZN and KwaZulu Natal is a really great agricultural green place. And, um, I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the environment. I fell in love with the concept of the environment. And then I did my undergrad in it. But did I plan and walk out of life saying from undergrad, I'm going to come out with a PhD? No. So that's why. You've grown into it. Yeah, you grow into it. Okay. And your specific area of, of focus is applied environmental science. Mm. Uh, and when I looked it up, it spoke about, you know, the intersect between the environment, between sustainability and mm-hmm. the practices and disciplines that kind of study that and how we, how we maintain it. Uh, your areas of focus within applied environmental science, where do you spend most of your time researching? Mm. So currently I'm focusing on food security, agriculture and climate change. Okay. That is my focus, um, for my PhD. Okay. Even in my undergrad or rather in my masters, I focused on still agriculture, but I was just looking at, um, remote sensing, satellite imagery and how we can use satellite imagery and in using it as a tool for an early warning warning system for our farmers. Okay. Right now, I am looking at ecological systems and looking at how we can incorporate the methods of ecology with agriculture. And the goal at the end of the day is to make sure that our farmers are food secure. Okay. Yeah. So I want to then take a step back and, and break it down because um, we're not all PhD candidates. <laughs> so quite simply, um, can you just give me 
in, in a nutshell, applied environmental science. What is mm-hmm. it that you, 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 you know, your fellow scientists achieve, attempt to achieve within that space? Mm-hmm. So for, in term, so there's a lot of avenues that you can take in environmental science. Um, earlier we were speaking about water. Yes. Some people can specialize in water and how you can, how we can be more sustainable with the use of water or how can we be more, how can we sanitize our water or whatever the case may be in the water issues. Yes. In terms of agriculture, you can focus on different farming systems or looking at a certain disease that has broken out into the farming system or look into how do we make our country more food secure. So um, applied environmental science is looking at different streams of the environment, be it water, be it energy, be it food. And how can we then um, apply our science and our skills in making sure that we sustain these resources or that these resources don't come out don't become in harm from human interaction or from industrial interaction or from science itself. Okay. Yeah. So we speak about food security. My assumption then is that th- there's a risk inherent in the availability of food and, and it's an area that clearly requires a lot of focus and attention. Mm. Um, where, where are we now? So where are we coming from and why do we believe there's a risk in terms of the sustainability of food supply? Mm. So when I did my master study, um, it was during the drought. Um, I don't, I don't know if you remember, two years ago, three years ago, there was an extreme drought that left our farmers yes. in such debt yes. in terms of um, their produce and their food security and and just food availability in its whole. So with the change in climate and with development, so first of all, it's population. The population is growing at, an, at a greater rate right now. People yes. are moving into urban areas. People are... Um, are no, are no longer practicing farming in their in their in their rural areas. People are moving into cities, so there's a lot of dynamics now that are happening in in the world in saying that with the increase of population, how do we ensure that we have food security? At the same time, as the population is growing, that means more land is being used for housing, more land is being used for industrial development because people need jobs. Mm. So how do we manage that kind of shift that's happening right now? So you see that as we increasing in, in developing our land, but now what is going to happen to the land that we need to grow our food? Yes. So those are the two dynamics that we have. And that's where I'm focusing on my PhD is that with these changes in these, in these demands in life with food security, how do we manage that? So, on top of that climate change, environmental change, you're seeing that there's a lot of extreme weather events that are happening. Yes. It rains, yes, but it's now hailing more. Mm. And you ask yourself, how, what does that do? You see that summer is not as hot as it should be. So how do we, um, how do we kind of understand these changes in the environment and how do we make sure that we're ready for them? That's why we need to study environmental sciences. Okay, I'm with you. I'm, I'm kind of sitting and I'm thinking um, there's a school of thought that says we need to change the way we engage the earth mm. so that we can mitigate the, the, the change in the climate. Mm. What I'm hearing from you is that you've kind of accepted that it's changing and it's how do we engage that? Mm. How do you reconcile the two? So it is all about awareness and it is all about acceptance um, in terms of an individual and in terms of leaders. Okay. So um, if the environment is changing and you can see that a typical case is Cape Town right now with the, with, with the water challenge that they have going on. Yeah. As a leader and as individuals, that is something that you have to accept that it's changing. Yes. So now if you don't accept it, that's where we start having problems and that's where we start having day zeros. And that's where you start seeing that people are now 
being on a uh, in a panic on how do we now what is what is this environment and how do you do that? So I'd say how do we merge the two is first of all awareness, making making the study of environmental science as a as an, a way of informing policy and informing leaders in how do they decide when they're developing a certain um, building or when they are deciding to install a, a water sanitation project. So how do we, um, so that is, that is the way that we can actually kind of make um, environmental science and merging the two sectors of having these changes and accepting these changes, but at the same time, Making people aware, making leaders aware, and making society change their habits in how they communicate or how they interact with the environment. Mm. Do, do you believe that we can have significant impact on changing the rate at which the climate is 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 you know is is, deg- is degrading? To, mm. You know, so is is that an area? I know it's not your particular area of focus. I mean, you're more on the other side of that coin. But in your opinion, being an expert in the field is, is I mean, do we have the ability to change it? Because I've heard, you know, where they talk about, well, it was inevitable, it's going to happen. And there's the other side that says, no, it's greenhouse emissions and all the stuff that we're doing as human beings. Where do you sit on that? Yeah, there's def- definitely we can do something about it. So it's um, the reality is that scientists are doing this research. They've been doing this research. We've got theses and libraries and universities of scientists qualifying with their PhDs, qualifying with their masters, focusing on these key challenges of food, water, energy. Okay. And now it's a matter of integrating these sectors. So research and innovation and combining it with leadership and governance and, and, and policy and combining it with, um, with normal individuals, with society. Those are the three legs that we've kind of have to incorporate in making sure that we, we can combat to the impacts of climate change. Is there technology to impact climate change? Yes, there is. Okay. Are there methods to um, make sure that the impacts of climate change aren't felt as hard or as cutthroat in business, in personal lives as it is currently? There are methods and, and, and um, solutions. I think maybe scientists or um, the industry of science has not been taken seriously enough to say, what have you guys done? On the ground And where are we currently Just in general yes. Not not when a crisis happens Then we Now we're reacting And we're all saying We are all the water experts There's no water yes, What are the scientists yes. saying And you've got Water experts Sitting in departments Just sitting And you've got Young energetic Hydrological scientists That are sitting there And you can you can use all of these minds in in playing around with ideas. It's all about playing around. That's what research is. That's what innovation is. You play around with it. You give money and funding to these scientists and say, here's the issue. Here's what we are predicting. How do you solve this? Mm. You know, start mm. doing that now and not waiting for a drama to happen. And then you call all the scientists and say, what's been? happening? Yes. You know what I mean? Let, so let me ask this question then. Given that we've had of the, we've had this burning platform, you know, so we had the droughts. Um, you know, a couple of years back, and then we we recently had the situation in in the Western Cape um, with with the droughts there. Have you seen now an, an impetus in terms of kind of attention and focus being placed on on, on the scientists mm. and the scientific fraternity to come up with solutions? Is mm. that has that grown? Yeah, it's grown definitely. Well, in terms of uh, the water problem in Cape Town, definitely the water scientists are more. Um, involved in my department, my supervisor was um, and his colleagues were actually speaking about how 
day in and day out, they're getting calls around what do we do? What's, what's, what is this? What's going on? Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And then, um, some of my colleagues in Cape Town who are doing water engineering, you can see the amount of attention they are getting. It's completely changed. Now you've got young PhD females who are now being asked, you know, write an article on what you think of the water crises. Come to a, pa- a panel and discuss the water issues and how do we deal with these issues. The challenge then is, um, as a country, we can move to a research industry where scientists are telling us all these solutions, but there's still issues of development that we haven't dealt with mm. in saying that how, um, yeah, now the water issues highlights it because now everyone is out of water. However, they've had rural areas that have not had water for years and that people, and nothing has changed. Yeah. So why was it not a concern? And I think that for me becomes a, it just shows it's just reactive. So mm. when we solve it, I'm not, I'm not convinced that they're going to say, let's carry on. You know, how about the person, Oshale Ekaelisha? And it does not have water access. Mm. That person should be a priority as much as the person who's staying at Camps Bay. Absolutely. So those are, those are the issues that I have in terms of water developments and science and, and developments as a whole that we need to prioritize it throughout the year, throughout individuals, throughout every inch situation and not calm down. Yeah. It should be part of a strategic plan we have for the country. Every day. Every day. You know what I mean? I should be, or not even me, every scientist that's doing her PhD should be in every policy decision making or every um, new technology um, meeting Not sitting in your silo In your research office No The reason why you're doing this research Is so that It's because you're researching it You're trying to make sure that Whoever said this is Said it right Or I'm saying now um, This is how you can improve it So how, how am I doing that And you're not even away Absolutely You know what I mean That yeah. for me is like What's the point <laughs> So we've got to start now Because we've seen that At the end of the day You call the scientists When there's a tragedy To figure it out Of course you need the business sector to invest in that idea yes. But you still need The foundation of the scientist Who has the knowledge And says to you um, This is what has been done Let's try this It doesn't work Let's try that And we and we find a solution mm. And mm. and your focus now Is on food security mm. And obviously There's a natural uh, link Between availability Security of water And security mm. of food mm. But I want to focus now uh, On the work that you do And you mentioned that Specifically what you're researching Is how diversifying um, The crops That farmers Small scale farmers um, uh, 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 farming um, can enhance food security and you're looking at different models of how that then creates a sustainable system for those farmers. Can you talk us through that? Mm. So um, our farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, that's where my focus is, okay. we've been practicing methods um, of diversification. So the majority of farmers in sub-Saharan Africa are small-scale farmers. Um, this means um, between two hectares to five hectares, and not, okay. not large plots. Yes. Um, so with this whole changing Need and demand of food security and development that's happening in, in our countries. Um, we're seeing that a lot of people, there is a higher need to produce food. There's a higher need, um, to, to have more investment in food production. The challenge is that with this higher need, you're seeing developed countries and large scale farmers coming into the country and farming into this land okay. because we have arable land. Yes. In London, it's snowing right now. It's freezing. That's not suitable for agriculture. We have warm environments. We have, we have, um, green environments. We have rainy weather. We have rich soils. So it makes our land more, um, more, more able to produce, um, food production. Okay. So how, um, 
So now how do we make sure that these methods that the farmers are using, diversification, can be used to impact the, the changes in the climate? So what diversification says is that we have different types of crop in one land, okay. um, in one plot of land. So this means that some crops will be more resilient to the changes of climate than others. If you have spinach and potatoes, potatoes might be more resilient to the changes or to a warmer climate or to a colder climate. That means that you'll always have food no okay. matter what. Okay. So they're using these systems unaware, like they just, it's just being done. So yeah, if you have, that's what I know. Yeah. If you like just, yeah. So if you take tomatoes and you're just like, Oh, there's a seed of tomato. Let me put it here. Yeah. The spinach, let me put it here. There's no planning. So what we're trying to do is see what kind of genetic, um, combinations can we have that are scientifically proven to make sure that you have this kind of food supply throughout the year. So you could find that okay fine they might have say cabbage spinach and they're all there. So cabbage and spinach is from the same kind of species yes. we are trying to say how does it become also nutrient to you as a person who's eating it. So you're not just eating one kind of um, vitamin or one kind of vegetable but we're trying to say have your potatoes, have your spinach have your, your green, um, your, your reds, your tomatoes or whatever Combine all of those and see how, if it actually works, does it actually work? Can mm. we actually make sure that people are food secure no matter what the change in climate is um, with these different combinations of, of food okay. in one part? My, my assumption is that it's, you know, when I've been to, you know, kind of small garden farms, that my assumption is that people are already doing that. Mm. I'm trying to ascertain what becomes different that then suggests that we need to do some very advanced scientific studies mm. around it. So the, the challenge is nutrition and the, also the challenge is um, production. So if you, if you, they are doing it, but it's not necessarily proven that it is a method. So now once we prove it um, and say, okay, um, diversification is a method that can combat um, climate change, okay. then we can start using that in informing policy and saying that, okay, guys, um, as leaders, here's a booklet that says to you, these are the different crops that you can plant in, in one plot of land. This is how much you can actually extensify your land in making sure that you can produce as much as you can. Okay. You know what I mean? I so see. it's more, um, it's more detailed in saying it's not just a, a winging it kind of situation. It's a much more deliberate. It's a more deliberate thing now okay. that we're saying do it deliberately and it's going to work out for you. Um, in that sense also, it's a way of ensuring that if you increase your land, you can also sell more. You can also produce more for, for your yield and for, for your income and for your household. So it's, it's not like, oh, this didn't work out. I wonder why. And then you start adapting into that pattern and saying maybe spinach doesn't work out in this time of the year anymore. You know instantly from the get go that this is, doesn't work out and this works out. Mm. So it's something that we are, we are testing out and it's something that I hope actually can inform. Policy, in yeah, the policy yeah. in the future. And tell me, um, the, with how are you going about doing this? Uh, I know mm. you mentioned that part of, you know, some of the stats you're working with mm. is 80,000 farmers and multiple yeah. crops. To talk us through, you know, how one goes about doing a PhD study of this nature. Uh, okay. So th it's different. Um, I don't know how other people are doing it, but for me, I'm going to be using, um, so my, my supervisor is a systems analysis ecosystems specialist okay so he is um so we're trying to look at it at different angles using different um, methods in proving the same thing okay. kind of way so we're not just using one method so we're using satellite imagery such as um remote sensing we have what, what is remote sensing i know you mentioned it a bit mm. earlier just uh, explain it very remote quickly. sensing is satellites that are in space that take um images 
orbits around the Earth, okay. and they show landscapes across um, the world. Okay. So we are gonna obviously zoom in into my study area. Okay. And see an over an, an eye view and um, a bird's eye view. So it's almost like you're on a plane mm-hmm. and you're taking pictures with your camera. That's basically what remote sensing is. Okay. So we're gonna be looking at that and seeing. So we say that we are a diverse nation. Um, looking from a bird's eye view, can we see that in our landscapes using different remote sensing? Can we see that, okay, this farm is, 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 has changed his plot size into being blocks, into being circles? Can we see that it's diagonal, vertigo, vertigo versus horizontal? Satellite imagery So we're going to look at that first And then we're going to look into a statistical Statistical um, analysis Because of the data set being so large That I have And during that you have to use methods like Python Like R In in predicting or in, in Kind of showing us This is what's going on in the ground And given these predictions With climate change predictions Using weather data, climatic data And using our food security data Or our food um, collection our food data predict that with these changes, this is what's going to happen. With this is what's going to happen in the next twenty years. Okay. Yeah. And so. and your focus, you said, is in Zambia at the moment. Yeah, it's in Zambia. What's That's the reason right. for choosing Zambia, and, and how is that going? Zambia has large investments of large scale farmers currently in 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 the country. Okay. Um, in terms of the agricultural practices, they they do practice diversification um, w- more than how much we do in our country. So Zambia, with this. Surely, as soon as you see a country having all this kind of investment with large-scale farmers, it's interesting to see why why the interest why, why they're so interested yeah in that why are you interested here? Yeah. So we want to know why are they interested in this in this in this locate in the site, and also um, what are they doing that we can also adapt because we can have the same kind of climate, same kind of yes. um, soil structure, and and access to technology. So we're trying to see what they are doing and how can we implement it here, and okay. and and how we can do. Th- Kind of the same thing Yeah Is it not economic policy Perhaps That's just making it More accessible um, the It could land, be that legis- It could be that Yeah exactly yeah. And, and, and another thing is With South Africa It's a little messy right now You know To try and do land Analysis And food security analysis um, If When I was just Just In my data Just looking at Ownership of land In their um, In their harvest surveys mm. A lot of the farmers Have kind of some kind of ownership in the land. So yes. history of South Africa plays a role into this kind of research. You can, uh, it was easy for me to fall into a land policy debate in my study. Okay. But I wanted to really focus on agricultural production debates. Okay. So with South Africa and the whole land rights and I was going to get swamped in. I know myself. I was just going to be like, we want the land. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just wanted to, um, so it was wise for us to, to move into that kind of area. Okay. Mm. Part of your research then also looks at the commercial sustainability within mm. the system. Um, and, and you, I mean, it's applied environmental science. So you're very much about the substance, mm-hmm. right? But in this case, you know, looking at the commercial viability, why does that inform the work that you're doing? Mm-hmm. It's very important because what we're seeing is farmers, uh, want to move towards a place where they own their own business. They're no longer owned by, uh, a white farmer. Or by a, a commercial farmer They want to own their own business okay. So for you, for a farmer to move into that We need to start understanding And when I say we I mean Africans Need to start moving into that research Because once it's in your blood To be an African and it, it's in you You also want to 
the best for that farmer. Yes. You see, so yes. that's why it's it's important that understanding the commercial side for me is very important because I can't come up with these systems and say this is works. But how do you know it works if it's not feeding the farmer? You I know, see. how yes. do you know? It yes. has to. At the end of the day, it's all about commercial. It's all about where is your product going to end? How is it going to be used? How is your work going to be? Who is it going to feed? Your work So the commercial side Is very important for me Personally Because I After my PhD I'd love to get into The commercial sector Of farming The business sector Of farming How do we Make our farmers Produce at a rate Where the large scale Farmer is producing Or how do we make sure That their product Is sold at spa And not sold at a Small spas are only But can be bought by um, Big companies like Spa, Pick and Pay, Woolworths mm. And make sure that they are actually Feeding into the supply chain system Of, of, of farming, of, of food production okay. So it's very important to understand that In terms of in food security Because food security is not just about you eating But it's also about your income It's also about your sustainability As, as a household, as a family So, And also these, these businesses are Starting, how do they start? So, um, do they get a loan? Do they get a grant? Are they funded for? Do they? It's very important because mm. then you're not growing. If you, if you're working on a loan, you're not growing. Okay. So we have to um, understand these systems. It's very complex, but you have to kind of combine all of them. And, yeah. and what are you seeing so far in, in from in that in that aspect? Well, uh, uh, aside from my research, I work with an incredible young lady. She's my mentor, Nono um, Sekoto, and she is a young farmer. And there's an African Farmers Association, AFASA, okay. and they look at South African farmers, black farmers, and trying to uplift them. So luckily, last year we had a conference, the first Black Young Farmers Conference, um, which was sponsored by Standard Bank and a whole lot of other sponsors. And we looked into the the, the African black farmers that we have currently yes and i think the challenge really is one there's we want to they want to grow you know what i mean they want to get out of where they are producing to a higher level of production and that's not easy Mm -hmm. because the time frame of of farming and crop production is not the same time frame as business absolutely where you you start a company for for electricians or technology and you get profit now here you have to wait a whole year and see whether your stuff is working out so it also becomes a difficult thing for bankers so how do they give you money what type of loan are we giving the farmers because mm. you can't expect the same return for a farmer than someone who is in a normal corporate business yes. so we're seeing a trend in them wanting to grow into being large-scale farmers or rather being their own Enterprise and without depending and and on 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 the government money or whatever money, but standing on their own and becoming a business. That's the trend that we are seeing currently in in young farmers. And yes. Yeah. And and what's their biggest issue? Is it the the the, the climate issues, which obviously then impact uh, on the ability to produce, uh, or is it the demand side where mm. you know large scale uh, you know food manufacturers or distributors mm. are accessing their product? Where, where's the bigger challenge? Mm. So one, it's land. We need we need access to land, okay. and two, it's skills. So Wait, I just want sorry, and, and mm-hmm. I'm, I apologize because I'm cutting you short there. No problem. Is it possible to determine yourself a farmer if you don't actually have land to farm? I'm just trying to get. Yeah, you can because you can loan out land, um, and I you see. can rent out land. I see. Yeah, okay. so you can still you see now. You see that's okay. the, that's the I'm same challenge you. that I'm saying is that. How do you make someone love with something they don't own? Okay. You know, how do you make a young person fall in love with this thing? You don't own it. You can, it can get taken away from you in a minute. Mm. Checkpoint had a lovely, um, segment on, um, farm killings. 
recently actually and it showed uh, a, a farmer a white farmer who had owned this land and just he was just so greedy about it that he took it he just took it away or i don't know i don't remember the signal but it just showed the dynamics of it that now what what am i doing you know like i'm i'm farming in this land but it, it doesn't belong to me so yeah you can be a farmer and not and not have okay, land i've got you so it's a, a challenge of land it's a challenge of skills so we can't give you land but now what am i doing you know i don't have the skills in agriculture and then it's also the challenge of technology so to produce large scale farmers don't go hand do it hand labor Absolutely They have irrigation systems That are running While you are in the office Automated While you are talking machinery. Other things yes. Exactly This is what Farmers need now They need technology They need financial Capital investments And they need technology And they need training And managing that technology If we can have Those three combinations Then we can see Maybe a change In, in how they produce food um, In the amount of production That they're actually doing uh, Making um, in In their land So just a simple exercise of of tilling, you know, tilling your your soil. Just mm. it's work, you know. If you, the worst, the the challenge also is that it's not even young people. It's it's old Ogogo in the community that are farming. The young people are moving into cities now, are getting jobs. They're not seeing this whole important thing of land. So if you want, if you want people to fall into in used to fall in love with agriculture, you've got to introduce technology. You've got to give them technology. If the government says uh, land with no um, what is it? Expropriation or yes, compensation? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Then make sure that there's a starter pack is skills, and it's also that you give them technology access, mm. training on how do I get access to this technology. That's very important. I want to then touch on something we spoke about earlier uh, on the on the queue around technology. I, I mean, I asked you about you know that new irrigation method. I think it came from the Netherlands or from somewhere in, in Western Europe. And it's like, you know, they drip the water directly mm. into the root system and it uses less water. And, and you were kind of skeptical to say, yes, obviously it's valid, but that there are steps before that, mm. that, that we're missing within our ecosystem. Mm. Yeah. Um, so as I said, the technology is there, but I am very skeptical from jumping from level one to level, to level a hundred because we still have to deal with the literacy rates of our farmers. Okay. Just the literacy rates on on understanding, uh, you know, climate change. Just just the literacy rates, mm. simple things. Mm. We still have satellite-free imagery that you can go online, and it can kind of tell you this land is suitable, this land is not suitable. They don't have access to that, the farmers. Sure. So I wonder, who are you going to teach these skills to? And who's actually going to gain from them? Yes, you can have a combination of farmers, um, some that are um, literate. I hate the word illiterate, but people mm. who are not as literate, you know. Mm. So how do you make sure that everyone is gaining the same uh, value from this kind of technology? Because you, what it's going to do is increase the gap even more. Because the people who get it are going to get it. And then the people who don't get it are not going to get it. And they're going to be like, I, I see Zoli and, and leave it. Yeah. And what, what it's just creating a bigger gap. Mm. And my challenge is, let us move gradually to it. You can introduce the technology, but before introducing it, we need to kind of prove to ourselves first that we can jump steps, you know, firstly, who are our farmers? How do they, what do they want to do? What are the skills that they're lacking? What are the financial skills that they're lacking? What is finance? What is business? What is the farming enterprise? What is producing at a level of, um, 
being market relevant and incorporating all these industries, then introduce this kind of technology. Mm. Because you can't. It's too much. It's like jumping from first year to PhD. Impossible. It's too much. It's too much skills that you need to know. You know what I mean? A lot of governments, projects and um, some private company projects have tried to develop some kind of co-op system where they're saying co-ops. So we buy, you have a a bigger amount of land and all of you guys in the community manage this land. Where are those projects? Hmm. Where are they? Let me ask a a, a question that comes from a, with my technology, technologist hat on. Um, If I look at how technology has allowed us to leapfrog, uh, you know, in, in certain industries in certain spaces, and almost commoditized uh, certain functions. So, mm. you know, we know even in very technical fields, or previously technical fields, accounting, mm. financial services, even in technology itself, you know, a lot of these things are now being done using things like artificial intelligence, using things mm. like machines and robots and so forth. Um, is there not the answer for us, rather than trying to catch up and yeah. get all this learning and it's just, it's just a question that comes to mind is it not to apply technology to help us leapfrog some of the mm. steps that we may have missed so that we can actually yield the you know we can get the yield from from the land mm. but at the same time we don't have to wait because my concern in the back of my head is by the time we catch up where will the rest of the world be and mm. won't we be left behind what are your thoughts mm. on that um i fear I'm always, what can I say? I fear being invaded by another country's way of method of applying it and then applying it to our country. Okay. I understand completely what you're saying in the sense that, uh, it, it can make things quicker and make things faster and we can, we can just leap and jump into it. Um, leaping and jumping into it, most of the time what happens is that we fall behind actually. We actually fall behind. Okay. So the first things first for me is we actually need to own our own stuff because once people come in and say, here's a way of leaping, there is some kind of ownership that they're going to have from that leapage that you have Absolutely. as an individual. Yes. So it's scary and and it's, it's very it's not something that I can say I'm guaranteeing and I'm saying let us do it organically. No, yes. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is let us Start now incorporating those those gaps before someone comes with the bigger knowledge and takes all of that, and we find ourselves in the same situation with good technology, but our farmers are still not gaining anything. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes. There's no way you're gonna come with an irrigation system from the Netherlands that is that is amazing, and you're gonna say, okay, hundred percent owned by you South African farmers. No, no, not that's not owned that by us. So what are we doing? You know what I mean? Mm. How about we try doing things our way? How about we try just just our space and understanding this is what we're lacking, this is what we need, and this is where we need to grow. Just just try that out mm. and see if it works out. If it doesn't, okay. If the technology comes in because you're not aware of your own value as a country and it comes in, you're gonna be, you're gonna jump into it and say, yeah, yeah, you're just gonna we consume want it. and consume. Yeah, yeah. We, want it. we want we want the technology. People are going to lose jobs. People are going to lose their own farming lands. People are going to start having to work in these machines. They're going to end up working to run these machines. Not that now they're working in their own land, mm, you know. So mm. I, I, I'm very, um, I, I guess skeptical. the message goes back to where we started, where we said that, um, you know, we need the, the science mm. of, of, of experimenting with things, of playing, of researching mm. to be driven so that we can then create our own systems that are very relevant to the work we do here. And in effect, I think what you're saying is we need to be exporting our machines and our technological advancements to the rest of the mm. world and not 
consuming the whole time. Yeah, no, it's for me. There's no excuse now for us to be to be consuming more than we can take out. There's no more. We have it in our hands as a country to do it. And now it's just about time that people start believing in these kind of in technologies that. That people have I think there was I saw something on Facebook I know it's not a, a legitimate site But <laughs> it was on Facebook Where um, a young guy I think his name is Unati He had a water solution That he presented to Cape Town mm. And he ended up being killed for it Why? Why then do we need Now they Apparently they're using This kind of technology That he presented years ago mm. So my question is Why are we doubting ourselves? Yeah We buy our local We buy our own skills we figure it out ourselves. That's how we should be thinking now as South Africans. Mm. And anyone who wants to come into the country needs to first understand that, that you're going to buy into it, and then we're going to see what you have to say, not the other way around. Mm. Because that's where exploitation happens. Quickly, quickly. Next thing, we've lost our land. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. And and we and we, we just we consumed by it. Oh, it happened so quickly. They're smart. They know that, yeah, 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 it happens quickly. You run the machine. We'll, we'll run this land. There's always a trade-off when it comes to these things. So we've got to know which trade-off do we, do we wa- not want to sacrifice. Sacrifice, yeah. yeah. How, do, how do we then make it more accessible? Uh, you're, you're a scientist, mm. uh, and I can tell you, even for me, it sounds very daunting. Mm. You know, this world, this research, you're talking about Python. I don't know if it's a snake <laughs> or what. So, you know, how do we – because – Part of the success in this is in people spending countless hours researching things, studying things, testing things out. Um, and I know you've got a foundation, which we're not going to get a lot of time to talk yeah. about today, but, but talking about women in science. But how do you start to make it more accessible so that we do have more scientists coming through the system and playing around with these things? Mm. So first of all, we've got to work from our basic education, um, just basic education. The whole education system needs to just... Figure itself out Refresh itself In in making sure That science technology Is something that's tangible It's not something That you read about So um, Access to labs Access to techno- Access to this technology mm. If we want to have Technology from the Netherlands Fine but you better have them in as a guest into the country and yes. teach the kids on this is a this is what this is what a, a new irrigation system looks like and they see it. So it's more it's more tangible. It's more something I can relate to than something that I read and calculate in my own space. Um, we've got to also sustain the ones that are in the industry. So the scientists that are in the industry that are now going to corporate because they're giving up. Research is daunting yes. and it's exhausting. Yes. And how do we make them see they value in the bigger picture? So not just to say, oh, I just want to submit and go, you know? Yes. How about you start partnering these students with corporate companies that actually will use your information. You know what I mean? So making sure that they see themselves in a larger scale than what they are. Yes, there are scientists who just want to do the pure technical technical stuff and don't want to be a part of it and they love it. But there are those scientists that just want to be relevant. They just want to see themselves and not say, I don't want to write this thing for years and then it just goes there and then I'm and then I'm just empty. You mm, know? So mm. I think that we need to make, we need to make more initiatives and not just initiatives, but more funding, more funding into these, into research and innovation and Pro- not just proactively and not proactively when there's yeah, a crisis. Yeah, yeah. More funding. There needs to be more funding. As much funding that there can be to science and technology, innovation and research, it should be there because a black student has responsibilities at home. 
you're telling me after nine years of study, now I have to go do my PhD. No, my mom expects a salary. My mm. younger brothers are growing up. Mm. So fund these students and make sure that they are not stressed on top of what they are doing in, in, in the office. Mm. And also make it tangible and make it, um, and make it more relevant to them. And that's how we can kind of encourage more science. Fantastic. Yeah. me before we wrap up, I mean, some thoughts from your side. It's been a very intriguing conversation. I see you're very attentive. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I love agriculture. I think it's it's more a leadership issue as well. I mean, in Gauteng, they've introduced the One Family, One Hectare um, 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 project where they're looking to have families um, own, but not just own, produce, you know, on that, and then have the communities around their benefit from it. Amazing. We were talking to Land, I was talking to Landbank a couple of months ago, and the biggest issue as well for them is skill. So there's a lot of farmers that they work with, but they 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 loan them money. They work with them, but the skill is an is an issue. The passion also becomes an issue because what happens is that they're not passionate enough to stay. So they business people. You get some business people who just want to farm. They think there's an opportunity. There's an yeah, opportunity. Make, there's yeah. money, and then when it doesn't work out because they they don't have staying power, they don't know what's happening in the farm. It becomes an issue. The other thing with you got a lot of corporates, multinationals that are focusing on food security, like you said, but mm. also water security. I mean, right now in water affairs, it's Western Cape that's number one. You've got the Eastern Cape next, Northern Cape, and then KZN. So they're now focusing on all those four to say, if we don't manage our water security right now, we're going to have a food security issue, right, in those four provinces. And those are the four provinces that have big land, right? So how do you make sure that small-scale farmers or emerging farms are given the opportunity to actually use that land? So for me, it's it's number one, a leadership issue. If if from a government, you get political buy-in from an agricultural perspective, and they're doing that now, right now. The problem is now they're focusing on money. They're not focusing on actually building emerging farmers to get to the point where they're able to like handle themselves and be able to do business by themselves. The biggest thing as well is market access. Mm -hmm. So you've got commercial farmers who have 20 year contracts with your shop rights and your pick and pays. Mm -hmm. And the, the quality of the crop is also an issue because the seedlings that they need to actually use don't produce the same quality that they, the shop rights on your pick and pay. So how do you get there? You need to get black people to be funded, to get those seedlings, to get the land, Mm -hmm. to be trained on how to basically take their crop to the market. So for me, it's an exciting thing. And I think we're going to be talking a lot about this moving forward. Absolutely. Ndoni, we're going to wrap up now. Um, It's been a great conversation. But very quickly, two things from your side. Um, Your vision for South Africa and for the Mm. continent uh, in the context of the work that you do. Mm. Ownership. That's my vision. Mm. Ownership. That's all I want. I want our farmers to get these skills and we test it out. We have not been given a fair advantage here. We need to own this and then be given the skills and given the same plate that every other farmer has received in the, in our own country. So the, the goal that I have as a country is ownership and policy um, implementation and providing them with these skills. Fantastic. And then the show is about disruption. And I mentioned it's not just about technological disruption, but really about doing things differently regardless of industry or context. Um, how would you define it for yourself, mm. disruption? Well, disruption for me is to say... Um, you're changing a system. You're changing the way that people view a certain thing. So just now we're talking about technology. Yes. I would say that if we change the view on how we view technology and saying that we're going to benefit from it, but rather they're going to benefit from us. So from seeing our own value and disrupting the way that you think and the way that you view that thing, that's disrupting an industry. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt with Employment Lapo. It's been another great conversation uh, with another wonderful guest. Uh, to our sponsors, T-Systems, once again, for making the platform available. We 
are very grateful. And uh, thank you for listening and tuning in. We'll be with you next week again on Disruptive Mpumi. Have a wonderful day. This is Disrupt with Mpumi Club. Powered by two systems. This is CliffCentral.com.